Welcome to A Reason for Hope. My name is Adrian, filling in for Dave Robson. Our brother's not feeling too good today, so if you don't mind uh, maybe praying for him, that would be fantastic. And in studio with me is our senior pastor, Scott Richards. Hey, everybody. And one of our brilliant apologists and one of our pastors here at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, Sean Richards. You flatter me, Adrian. (laughs) (laughs) We're so glad to be here. If you're new to the stream, uh, this is A Reason for Hope, a weekday Bible answer program where we take questions from our live stream audience, questions about the Christian worldview, about the Bible, uh, about the historic Christian faith. What does it mean to be a Christian? Can we have good reasons for believing that Christianity is true? Uh, as Pilate said, what is truth? <laughs> so that and many more questions. If you have a question about how to apply a specific scripture to your life or how to maybe interpret the Bible or a specific book of the Bible, things like that, <clears throat> please join us. And there are multiple ways you can do that. You can join us on Facebook. We live stream there simultaneously to YouTube. Our Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash CCF Tucson, or you can just Go to Facebook and search for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. As I said, we live stream simultaneously to YouTube. So if you have a preference, you can join the live stream on either of those social media platforms. Our YouTube channel is A Reason for Hope. So if you go to YouTube and just search for Reason for Hope, you will find us there. And you will see that little red icon with the white dove. So you'll know that's us. And uh, we also, if you prefer to go straight to our website and perhaps want to avoid social media altogether, we also live stream straight to our website. And you can go to calvarychristianfellowship.com and then just click that watch live tab where you can actually uh, not only join the live stream, but you can also watch all of our services. We live stream our Wednesday evening service. We call it our Oasis service where we are currently going through the book of Ezekiel. And of course, we have three services on Sunday Uh, 8 o'clock, 9.30, and 11 a.m., and you can watch those live as well, and we are currently going through the Book of Acts. Also, we have an app. I'd encourage you to download it if you're part of our community. This app can be downloaded on the Apple or Google Play Store. Just search for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, and again, look for that red icon with the white dove, and you'll know that's us. On this app, you can keep in touch with our community, join chat groups, create chat groups, see our calendar of events, listen to live streams, watch the services, as well as have a nifty digital Bible that's fully searchable. You can leave notes, you can highlight texts, all kinds of amazing things right from the convenience of your mobile device. We also live stream to all the Amazon and Roku products. So if you wanna add our channel to your smart device, Amazon Fire and Roku, you can do so. Now, if you have a question for this program and you want to do so maybe a little more discreetly, you can just email us <clears throat> at questionsforhope at gmail.com. That's questionsforhope at gmail.com. Also encourage you to follow our senior pastor, Scott Richards, on Twitter, or formerly Twitter, now called the X platform. And that handle is at Scott R4H. That's at Scott R4H. Very entertaining and very informative, especially if you are intrigued about what's going on right now in the Middle East keeping track with how the Bible relates prophecy and uh, what God's plan is for the people of Israel, for the land of Israel, I would encourage you to follow that. Before we get to a prophecy update, let's take a moment to pray and ask the Lord to uh, guide our words. I think that'd be awesome. Lord, thank you so much 
for your presence here. And Lord, thank you that when we call on your name, we know that you are the one who is working all things out according to the counsel of your will. Lord, you see the end from the beginning. Lord, when we see these things happening, you tell us to look up for our salvation draws near. It's one day closer to the return of Jesus. And we want to be ready for that. We want to be ready if you should choose to snatch us out before the storm, even before this broadcast is over. So, Father, uh, guide us into truth. We pray the questions that are presented, the questions that are answered, uh, would be honoring to you, would speak deeply to people's hearts, and uh, that uh, those that are listening to this broadcast, those who belong to you, would be comforted and encouraged uh, by the, the solid foundation that we have in your beautiful word. And those maybe on the outside looking in at a relationship with you would come into your forever family before this broadcast is over. They'd receive you into their heart and be born again, have a brand new life from you. Uh, Lord, we pray that all of this and much more would happen as a result of you using this broadcast for your glory. We commit it into your hands. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Scott. Now, um, <clears throat> as you've been following along, uh, for those of you who follow the program every day, there's just so much going on in the world. There's so much going on in the land of Israel. Scott, uh, what's what's going on the latest? It's almost a daily, maybe hourly update. So. Yeah. Yeah, well, for sure, uh, may you live in interesting times, the ancient Chinese curse puts it. Uh, we may be the most cursed people the world has ever mm. seen, if, uh, if that is true. Uh, lots going on, obviously. Uh, if you're new to this program, uh, we believe that Israel is the epicenter of uh, God's plan to right this world gone wrong. Jesus is going to return there. Uh, he has a very special plan, we are told, in passages like Romans 9 through 11, for the Jewish people. He's true to his promises. In Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3, he told Abraham he would bless those who blessed him and curse those who curse him. And so uh, we see that uh, in passages like Revelation chapter 12, that one of the reasons that Israel is uh, the centerpiece of so much struggle and conflict in this world is that because in the physical, it represents an awful lot about what's going on in the spiritual. Uh, we're told that uh, Satan hates Israel, and a very vivid visual picture of that is found in Revelation chapter 12. If you'd like to explore that a little bit, we can certainly do that on the program uh, for a number of reasons. Number one, because God's word came from Israel. Jesus told us that salvation is of the Jews. In other words, uh, everything we need to know about a relationship with God we have received from this one people group. Messiah himself came from Israel. Jesus' uh, twin genealogies in uh, Matthew and in Luke tell us that uh, he is a descendant of King David of the tribe of Judah, a Jew, if you want to use that expression. And so Satan hates the Jews because Jesus, who is going to return and reign and crush the serpent's head, uh, is uh, from the people of Israel. Thirdly, uh, Satan hates the Jews because uh, those who uh, take the message that we have received a revelation uh, from, uh, from God into this world uh, from the Jewish people have a message that will save and transform anyone in this world, whether Jew or Gentile. We also know that because God has such tremendous and remarkable plans for the Jews in the future, that uh, one of the things Satan would dearly love to do is to destroy the Jews before uh, they have the opportunity to be able to fill, fulfill that destiny. We see that same sort of strategy. Uh, Adrian, you and I talked about a little bit on Monday about how even Herod wanting to kill all the children two years of age and younger so he could uh, exterminate the possibility of Messiah coming into the world. We see that satanically 
inspired attack physically, but the spiritual roots behind it. And so because of that, we want to take time in our broadcast, in our program, uh, to be able to share with you what's going on in Israel. And we do know that uh, Jesus said that wars and rumors of wars specifically pertaining to Israel would increase in frequency and intensity as the big day of his return for his people draws near. So we want you to be up to date on all of that. As far as uh, details going on here, uh, last night uh, another uh, actor entered the fray, uh, Yemen, uh, which is pretty much half controlled by a group called the Houthi Rebels, which are, again, a wholly owned uh, subsidiary of the Mad Mullahs in Iran, launched uh, some of their very sophisticated ballistic missiles uh, with the idea of hitting the southern Israel uh, resort city on the Red Sea called Elat. We've been to Elat on our, our uh, Israel trips, and uh, it would make a very inviting target. Now, Yemen is some 1,000 miles away from Elat. And so what we are dealing with here on these missile launches is the idea of ballistic missiles, as they are known, missiles with a very long range. Well, interestingly, when these uh, missiles were launched, and uh, from what I understand, seven of them were launched in the direction of Elat in Israel, uh, they were taken out by a new missile system that Israel, in a sense, has debuted in this uh, conflict. It's called the Arrow Missile Defense System. Uh, in fact, uh, it was very, very effective in taking out these threats before they got, uh, well, much beyond earshot of a lot. People in a lot heard the explosions, hmm. but none of them crossed over into Israeli territory. They were destroyed over the Red Sea. Well, uh, this uh, missile system is different, if you will, from what you've heard of the Iron Dome. The Iron Dome is good for short-range missiles and and drones uh the uh, david sling system is probably more adept at taking out drones and things along that line but this one uh can shoot down uh well a little bit of everything uh according to an article in the jerusalem post uh the good news is and this is in the article in the jerusalem post that israel can now present to iran and the rest of the region that it has a fully operational missile defense against ballistic missiles. In 2022, U.S. CENTCOM chief Kenneth McKenzie said Iran had over 3,000 ballistic missiles, not counting its increasing number of cruise missiles, only a portion of which can reach Israel. But the point is that since the 90s, the Islamic Republic has had weapons that could reach Israel. And while Israel has hoped that its aero missile shield would hold up, it has never been fully tested. Well, now it is battle-tested. Oh. Now, that uh, really uh, shuffles the deck as far as what's going on in this particular conflict because if the Aero Missile Defense System is as effective as advertised and has been proved by these probing attacks, I believe, by the Houthis here, well, then Iran has some problems. Uh, a uh, head honcho in Iran's military uh, was quoted as saying that Iran's strategy in particular in these kind of fights is not to engage the enemy directly, but to use proxies and to use missiles against the Zionist entity, as they refer uh, to Israel. Well, if uh, Iran uh, is now staring down the barrel of not being able to use its Houthi proxies in the south to do damage to Israel because 
of the aero defense system. If, in fact, uh, as we know, there are two U.S. carrier groups now fully in place, the one uh, headed up by the USS Gerald Ford, the other by the USS Dwight D. Eisenhower, and a command and control ship of incredible sophistication commanded by a three-star admiral, the highest-ranking individual that's been in this region for quite some time. Uh, the two uh, carrier groups are commanded by one-star admirals. Now we've got a three-star with a lot of experience behind him. Well, then a lot of Iran's strategy in this particular conflict is, uh, is going to be definitely countermanded, if not out and out challenged. Uh, another big uh, news item that ran yesterday was uh, the Hezbollah group, which runs the show in Lebanon, which is the most powerful of all the Iranian client terrorist groups, has announced that uh, their, uh, their leader, Hassan Nasrallah, is going to make an address to the world at uh, 3 p.m. Eastern time on Friday. Uh, there have been other uh, back-channel sources that have said that uh, what Nasrallah is going to announce is that unless the United States uh, brokers a ceasefire with Hamas, between Hamas and Israel, that uh, Nasrallah will announce that uh, Hezbollah is going to fully enter the conflict and uh, give the heave-ho for their vast weapons cache that they have. There are over 200,000 rockets uh, by one estimation. Now, that's really important because you go, well, doesn't Israel have the Iron Dome? Well, one of the things that we've seen demonstrated in Gaza is that the Iron Dome can be defeated if you overwhelm it with a huge amount of rockets. You can only take out so many, and then some get through. It, it's the uh, old deal about how uh, the Iron Dome has to be right every time to protect Israeli citizens. Uh, the uh, rockets launched by Hamas only have to be right once, in a sense, to be able to do some damage. Mm. So that kind of saber-rattling could mean that we're going to see a real acceleration of the conflict going into this coming weekend. Israel is proceeding apace as far as taking out uh, terrorist sites. It's very interesting to hear the criticism of Israel along this line, particularly since uh, they say, oh, well, you know, some of these sites were close to hospitals. Well, that's precisely where Hamas sets up its command and control centers. So you really, in a sense, uh, can't uh, expect Israel to do anything else. Say, um, Kind of a uh, stir the pot photo uh, was shown right before airtime of a missile strike uh, that took out uh, what almost looked like a, a city block uh, next to a hospital and next to some uh, government administrative offices. Uh, but uh, what they didn't mention on this is even if you look at the photo, you see that underneath this bomb crater are the remains of terror tunnels and command centers that Hamas was using at that particular place. Israel's going out of its way. Uh, to try to minimize civilian casualties as much as possible. How much that is going to be possible in the long run, uh, we really don't know. Uh, but uh, the, the bottom line is this. Uh, when we went into Nazi Germany in World War II, there were, there were things called collateral damage. There were civilians that ended up getting into harm's way. And when you have an all-out war going on like this, uh, that sort of thing is going to happen. So we need to pray that that happens as minimally as possible. Another interesting development going on, uh, the uh, Israeli Knesset, their rough equivalent of uh, the United States Senate and the Congress and their parliamentary uh, form of government, 
was shown the uh, video that was uh, presented to uh, newsmakers and others of the atrocities that Hamas committed in uh, their initial assault on Israel that left over 1,300 Israelis dead. Uh, most lawmakers, uh, according to an article in All Israel News, couldn't bear to stay to see through the end of it. Uh, one fainted. Uh, another uh, was uh, asking for sedatives to be able to uh, cope with the graphic and gruesome images uh, that was uh, that was shown uh, during this time. They had three senior psychologists, experts for emergency psychological treatment at the Knesset in uh, request to several members who were struggling to recover after seeing this 45-minute video. Uh, Keti Sherit of the uh, Likud party left after only a few minutes. Uh, she said, I could not bear the sights. I could not see the evil, the voices of the children. Their pleas in the face of pure evil do not leave me. Now, what they are showing is not video that was taken by the IDF. What they are showing is video that Hamas posted to their own website mm -hmm. as a way of bragging about what they had done. Uh, Alma Cohen of the Jewish Power Party said the eyes and the head cannot grasp it. The pictures of babies, the age of my son broke me. I walked out in the middle broken, unable to see and understand what has happened to us. Uh, many said I couldn't stay until the end. I watched revolting horrors. Now the picture of the murdered tender baby appeared. It was so painful and difficult that I went out. It will be engraved in the depths of my soul forever. Uh, in fact, uh, interestingly, Members of the Arab Ra'am party, Mansour Abbas, Walid al-Wahashia, and uh, Iman Khatib Yasin, had not registered to attend this presentation, but decided to attend at the last minute. Abbas walked out in tears, saying, it is difficult, I cannot speak. Hmm. So uh, the idea behind that uh, is that uh, you're seeing a lot of spin going on in uh, media. Uh, in uh, our halls of academia. It was uh, really just amazingly tragic to see that uh, the head, uh, the uh, president of the Harvard Law Review, uh, a student at Harvard, was seen assaulting uh, and taking part in assault of Jewish students doing nothing else than trying to walk to class on campus. Uh, it's just uh, uh, amazing what's going on. And uh, again, uh, we are told that uh, one of the leaders of Hamas has posted a video. You can see uh, this video from this senior Hamas official. His quote is, we will repeat the actions of October 7th again and again until Israel is destroyed. Hmm. Um, one of the <coughs> posts that we put up on um, our Twitter site uh, at scottr4h, twitter.com, or X platform if you want to follow that, uh, was uh, the was this particular video? Uh, we put it up there, and it was really interesting to me that uh, there were those who were saying, "Oh, well, the Christian response is to call for a ceasefire here." Well, there's no such thing as a ceasefire. One of the things we posted up there is, you cannot have a settlement with people who behead infants. I mean, you might as well try to have a settlement with the Manson family as a mm -hmm. way of controlling crime in Los Angeles in mm -hmm. the 60s. Not, not going to happen. Uh, you might well, as well try to have a settlement with Hitler after discovering the death camps. Might, it, it is really the exact same thing. It is fascinating to me, though, and you know, again, I'll turn it over to you, Sean, for a comment, uh, but the most fascinating development I have seen uh, 
is uh, the head scratching amount of comments from conservative right wing oriented commentators who blame Israel for all of this, who seem to be uh, marching this drumbeat. This is none of our business. We've got problems at home. Israel has uh, provoked these people for years. Uh, so uh, it's Israel's problem. Let them go finish it. Yeah, a big by problem provoke. just by existing. That's yeah. that, that's the provocation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, from, you know, it's interesting. A uh, uh, person asked me, well, if the far left uh, are viciously anti-Israel and the far right are viciously anti-Israel, what does that tell us? Well, here's what it tells us. Uh, politically, think of uh, positions like a globe. If you start at the middle and you go far left, you start in the middle and you go far right, isn't it interesting how you come to the same position eventually? Uh, I think that's what's happening there. Whether you are uh, a far right uh, individual and, or a far left individual, the one thing they seem to agree on is Israel is the problem. And there's a reason for that, uh, the lack of a relationship with God. Whether you're on the right or on the left, if you don't know the true and living God, in days like these, how are you not going to end up being seduced by this sort of stuff? Yeah, and sharing the heart of Satan, which we have talked about many times. Now, when it comes to understanding the nature of Islam in the world today, what we're talking about is something outright demonic. And we're not just saying that because we disagree with Islam's claims, it's because we're seeing the fruits of what it's produced. In a fundamentally anti-Christ religion, and by anti-Christ we don't mean they're going to create a seven-year peace treaty with the world, we literally mean in the first John chapter 4 sense, against Christ where the term actually comes from. And if there is this fundamental rejecting of who Jesus is, as we read in Surah 4 of the Quran, that he was neither killed nor crucified, and is literally just a copy and paste wrote of Muhammad's vernacular in denying that he is anything more than a messenger, and then defining messenger as essentially a ruler and warlord, then what we're going to see is this kind of trend that was set as the example for all Muslims, repeat itself in the lives of his followers individually. Now the good news is most Muslims don't know their prophet from their imam, and they wouldn't know their imam from their next door neighbor. But the problem is there are, and there only needs to be, only one that does. And if you look at the example of Muhammad, we see a three-stage process in how he infiltrated, dominated, and oppressed his societies. First is in a status of victimhood, one that we are very familiar with in the United States, that any verbal condemnation, any verbal vocalization, even artistic presentations of Islamic sources is considered as an insult. It needs to be sued into oblivion. It needs to be considered racist and Islamophobic and every other name that you can think of. And we note that as just the norm. When we see far left news organizations and now apparently far right as well, trying to come to the defense of Muslims, it's the same mistake that the Jews and the Arabs made when they tried to defend Muhammad from criticism in his time in Yathrib, which is called Medina today, and their attempts to just appease him in his irrational demands. When he started to gather an army, suddenly, as the population of Muslims grew, so does the influence and role of Islam in a society take root. They would perform what's called defensive jihad, and this isn't my term, this isn't a YouTube term, this was taken from an essay that was written by the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem in the 1940s AD. 
So in understanding this, this is from Islamic sources. And in History of Al-Tabari, Volume 6, pages 95 through 101, Muhammad's influence and interaction with the Arabs was all centered around this victimhood status, where he'd curse and deride and mock their traditions, their forefathers, everything about them on a social level. And whenever he was called to account for it, he'd fall back behind his uncle, who would defend him for a time. When he could no longer defend him, he went to Yathrib and became an arbiter for the Hebrews there. And when the Hebrews tried to defend and appease him, he started gathering an army in order to retake his, uh, I guess, wounded pride in uh, Mecca. Now, upon his return, of course, we note that his attempts to raid and terrorize the caravans that were going from Mecca to the other areas of the Middle East were not done because there was a military attack against Muhammad. They were done and through with him. They had no ill will apart from what was already expressed towards him. But he justifies this in the Quran where he says that persecution is worse than killing. Yes, we killed a man during a time and season where there was a universal ceasefire, but you kept us from going to the pilgrimage in Mecca, and that's worse. So they would justify violence in defense of social, political, or moral slights as they would deem it. And note, verbal criticism, like what we're doing right now, would count as an offense that they could retaliate with through violence. Then when Muslims constitute, and according to the essay, it was about a 40 to 50 percent chance uh, percent of the population, like what we're starting to see in Great Britain and many areas of Europe today, and some portions of the United States, they are able to enforce Sharia by force. And that, of course, is demonstrated in Muhammad's return to Mecca, the Battle of the Trench, the mass execution and ethnic cleansing of the Hebrews, the Christians, and anyone who wouldn't say, La ilaha illallah Muhammadun Rasulullah, which is, there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his messenger. To convert to Islam or die is what's available to anyone who doesn't pay what's called the jizya tax, and that's in Surah 929. We're under a curse from Allah because of what Surah 930 states, and they're encouraged in their methods in how they are to perpetrate war against the enemies of Allah, as Muhammad himself said at the end of his life in Sahih al-Bukhari, that unlike any other prophet before him, I have been made victorious through terror. And Muslims are directly instructed in Surah 8 and verse 60 to terrorize the enemies of Allah. And this was in the context of the Battle of Badr and, dis and distributing the spoils, how they'd approach war from that time onward. And on it goes. And if we understand that these teachings, these ideas, this liar that is influencing the hearts, lives, and minds of people made in the image of God, people we want to receive a saving relationship with Jesus, be able to live their lives out, raise their families, and see what they can do in this life, to not only know God but make him known, are instead being given a picture of a false prophet who only served to essentially dissuade his fragile ego through violence, which is what you see with Hamas, which is what you see with ISIS, which is what you see with Al-Qaeda and Boko Haram, and every other group that considers the words of Muhammad as Sharia, as the way to water, as law. So if this is in fact the world that we're living in, how do we combat it? Well, first of all, it's not by following the trend and playing into the hands of Muhammad by appeasing people who can't be appeased. 
if these people wish for your extermination, subjugation, and annihilation, there's only one way to combat them, and that is by the ideas that motivate this sort of view of people. Because if the Quran states that Muslims are the best of all peoples and non-Christians, polytheists, Christians, Jews, are the worst of creatures, lower than cattle, lower than pigs, that idea needs to be combated. Because individuals, first of all, can't be judged at face value. According to the Quran, you're encouraged to lie if it will protect the Muslim community from criticism or persecution. They don't have to be honest about their religion, which is why you see them lying through their teeth incessantly in news interviews and in public forums. But if you are able to combat the ideology, to sow doubt in the idea that Muhammad is actually worth listening to for the sake of salvation, I've been studying this for years, not because I hate Muslims, because I love them enough to meet them on terms that involve neither of us shedding a drop of blood. If you want to understand what is motivating these people to become monsters, look in two directions. Firstly, at their book. If someone repeatedly says over and over you, Elie Wiesel, survivor of the Holocaust, said, he said, believe them. And I think there's wisdom to that. But secondly, if a bad idea is what's motivating evil, you combat the evil by combating the bad idea. And understanding that our challenge is towards our fallen sinful nature, we don't need any favors in a book full of permissions to act on them. Whether it's in child molestation, see Surah 424, whether it's in wife beating, it's Surah 4 verse 3, whether it's in the, uh, the uh, sheer hypocrisy that is the entirety of Surah 33, whether it's the unbridled violence and terror in Surah 8 and 9, whether it's the just nonsensical arguments and just-so statements of Surah 2, or just the absurdity of arguing this is from God because you can't produce anything better, which is the sole argument, by the way, that the Quran makes for itself, then we need to be able to meet them and say, why? What is your actual argument? Why do you come to these conclusions? Because most of the time, Muslims are going to be decent enough to say, well, you know what? It's just my family. It's just my culture. This is just my religion, my beliefs. And if that is in fact the problem, it can also be where we start to reach a solution. These things need to be addressed. We live in a culture and a world that is getting darker and darker, and here is the opportunity to show light. Muslims believe in a false god, but they can know a true god. Know what you believe. Know the four or so objections that you're going to hear on repeat from them. Meaning, and this is simply put, just know these issues, you will make it out of 99% of all conversations you will have about Muslims. The Trinity is illogical. How can God die or any other human characteristic? How did he become a man? The Bible's been corrupted, which is, uh, of course, not only false, but in the way that they mean it, a standard that the, not even the Quran would be able to survive. And then, of course, when it comes to the nature of salvation, someone dying for your sins is unjust. Islam calls us to pay for our own sins, to do good deeds to outweigh our bad deeds. When you actually read the Muslim sources, just to start you off, Sahih al-Bukhari 6664, states that we will be punished for the sins of Muslims, and of course, that is not just. So if they're going to parrot these slogans that have been popularized by people like Ahmed Didat, Shabir Ali, and in the modern day, people like Ali Dawa and Muhammad Hijab, real pieces of work there, then we need to be prepared for these things. And it's not difficult. 
I'd recommend ministries like Acts 17 Apologetics, P-F-A-N-D-E-R Films, Fander Films, Hatun Tosh and DCCI Ministries, and plenty of others. But note that as we're engaging in this fight, this is how this war can be won. Not through bullets and bombs, that's their weapon, that's their warfare. But as Second Corinthians states, our warfare is for tearing down arguments and strongholds and every argument that levels itself against the truth of God. Be prepared to share the gospel with people who are at an open door at any other time in history and need it because we live in very dark times and among very dark people. And this is one dark path of many that can be easily dissuaded from. Because note this, and I'll finish on this point. If you have a Muslim who's willing to kill for his religion, then you have two options. Either make them less motivated to do so and sowing doubt between why they would give their lives to the words and commands of Muhammad, or enable them with fewer and fewer excuses to believe this is worth dying for. And it all starts with knowing this book. It's shorter than the New Testament. It's by far less coherent. But when it comes down to it, it can be something that's engaged with intelligently, and most of the work's been done for you. Take advantage of the resources available, because in the world that we're living in, it's not going to be something that's going to be handed to us. We yeah. have to study to show ourselves approved. Yeah, only one thing I'd, I'd add to all of this. Uh, uh, there was a uh, report out that uh, the federal government, uh, the White House, is putting together a task force to come up with a response from what they consider a real threat they call Islamophobia. Uh, we're going to see some announcements made along that line. And some people asked me about that. And so uh, on our, again, on our Twitter feed, uh, you know, I posted this. If someone asks, do you have a fear of Islam? I'll honestly answer, well, sure. Uh, if a belief teaches, uh, among other things, this is from Sa'i al-Bukhari, Hadith 2926, the hour will not be established until you fight with the Jews and the stone behind which a Jew will be hiding will say, oh, Muslim, there's a Jew hiding behind me, so kill him. Yes, I have a very well-founded and rational fear of the implications of that teaching. But there's a difference between fearing a teaching and having a compassionate and broken heart for those who are trapped in that teaching. Islamophobia is a misnomer because it isn't irrational to fear such teaching while still grieving for those who are under its influence. So we've got to be prepared because uh, I think this uh, uh, Islamophobia uh, program is uh, it's going to hit the news here in a couple of days. Mark my words. Yeah, I could agree with saying don't have Muslimophobia, meaning don't oppress or mistreat Muslims because they are associated with the religion. But on an ideological level, <clears throat> absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah. the only difference between Muhammad and Hitler is about 1,300 years. Yeah. Well, yeah, Muhammad in one day, the Battle of the Trench beheaded between six to 800 Jews, personally. Very, yeah. yeah. So, and note, yeah. he beheaded them on the basis of having them stripped down and exposed whether or not they had pubic hair. Hmm. So public humiliation as well. And collective punishment, because the reason they were exterminating the tribe was because of the actions of a few of them. <laughs> well, I won't say any more, otherwise I'll get this video banned. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, for those we're, of pro we're probably on the edge anyway. So. <laughs> for those of you who uh, are really interested in Pastor Scott's uh, prophecy updates, we have developed a new category on our website for our sermons, our messages. If you go to calvarychristianfellowship.com and you navigate to messages and hit most recent sermons, 
we have created a ca category called biblical prophecy. If you go to that uh, category, you can see some of the most recent messages that are prophecy updates. If you want to get a little more in-depth understanding of what the Bible has to say about the future, things that have not been fulfilled, things that have been. Um, so there are several messages here that I encourage you to go check out. Again, go to calvarychristianfellowship.com, navigate to uh, messages, and hit most recent sermons, and then click on the Bible prophecy tab. And we'll be adding one tonight in our study in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 38, the infamous Gog and Magog mm. invasion of Israel, and where that fits into I've been God's waiting plan. waiting for this chapter. I've got chills. <laughs> <laughs> so, Very exciting. Yeah, Thank I'm waiting you, for chapter Scott. 43. Yeah. <clears throat> well, we have some questions from the interwebs. Uh, Yopi, thank you for listening in. Uh, uh, listening in from, let me just double check, uh, Jamaica. from Jamaica. So thank you so much Been for joining Jamaica. the live stream. Spent some time in Mo Bay. Nice. So, very anyway, nice. Greetings out to our Jamaican friends. Yeah, thanks for joining the live stream. Uh, question is, if God's will is already going to be done and fulfilled, God knows everything that happens and will ever happen, why pray? If God is in control and knows before we ask, why should we ask? Thanks. Yeah, it's the purpose of prayer. When it comes to us coming to God with requests, it's usually assumed to be like sitting on, to use the American term, a Santa Claus lap to get what we want Christmas morning. But the opposite is the case. The purpose of prayer is the same purpose of any time spent in a relationship, not to coerce them into our way of thinking, but to align our thoughts and our priorities with each other. So if we, for example, read in the book of Philippians chapter 4, and I'll try not to steal your thunder there, on verse 6 it says, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication, so not just communication, but making requests, supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now, as these things are made known, not fulfilled necessarily, but made known. Notice what verse eight or verse seven says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Now this goes in tandem with a point that Jesus made at the Last Supper, where in the Gospel of John, chapter sixteen, Jesus states, Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Now people think, oh, so that's why we say in Jesus' name, amen, is so that we can get our prayers fulfilled, right? Well, no, to act in someone's name is a legal term. And if you were to do that, you are behaving as if you were that person. That's why the conversation starts in verse 19, where he was essentially laying out the point, they're gonna miss the whole point of his death and resurrection, and reminding them, you're gonna be sorrowful now, but when I rise, your joy will be fulfilled. Align your priorities with me, and when you ask for these things, you will see them fulfilled. So in a sense, it's this. Instead of saying, God, I want to gamble on what I hope happens. Instead, going to God in prayer, praying in Jesus' name, with the heart of Jesus, with the priorities of Jesus, is to say, like he did the garden, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. To say, you know what? God, as you stated, you're going to do what you want to do anyway. So why not make me want what you are going to do anyway? So I set myself up for a win here. That's the purpose of prayer. Now, does God know what's going to happen? Yes. Can God allow things to happen that are less than ideal for us because of the decisions we've made? Also, yes. But the purpose of prayer, and I'm repeating this point because it's important, is not to say, here's what I want, now give me. It's here's what I want, how about you? 
and then defaulting to him. It's aligning your will with God's, not to necessarily conform him to yours. Yeah, you know, and the only thing I'd add to that is uh, I think it's so uh, key for us to understand that Jesus prayed. Um, you know, when uh, his number was up, if you will, in the Garden of Gethsemane, what did he do? He prayed. Mm. He prayed earnestly. He prayed passionately. He prayed with such intensity, with sweating as it were, great drops of blood. So, you know, if I look at Jesus and I see in Jesus everything that God would want me to be, then it only makes sense whether I can figure out all the metaphysical and philosophical implications of it all uh, to pray and to pray like my prayers really do make a difference mm. because that's certainly how Jesus prayed. Uh, and you know, when I get there, when I see the Lord face to face, and when you do, uh, then we'll be able to figure out all the logistics and how mm. sovereignty and free will and, and uh, whether there's uh, mm. what won't, will happen, won't, won't, won't happen, what could happen and how all that came together. Uh, we'll see that God got it exactly right. But uh, you know, the Bible tells us, you know, I guess as simply as I can put it, in Luke chapter 18, Jesus spoke a parable to his disciples that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. You know, the thing I've discovered about prayer is, and I think this is something that happens to us, the, the more uh, the Lord develops, uh, not necessarily what we call a prayer time, but, but a, a time of communing with him is this, I get so much encouragement out of just setting aside this world for a time and speaking to God about what's on my heart, quieting my heart, remembering what he says in his words so I can hear his voice as I pray, uh, to take the things that matter most to me and to bring them to him because it reminds me that he cares more about these people and circumstances than I ever could. And, you know, like the, the scripture that uh, you mentioned, Sean, the peace that passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus if I pray. If I don't pray, not so much. Uh, you know, it's a great way of kind of getting our hands off of things, putting our lives where they belong, right back into God's hands as far as our understanding goes, as far as our desires go, as far as our will goes. But there's that nearness, that that, that closeness mm. to him. I love what Psalm 100 says, enter into his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his holy name. You know, that tells me there's almost like a progression there. I enter into his gates, you know, this picture of the temple, the outside of the temple with thanksgiving. His courts drawing closer and closer to the holy place mm. through praise. And uh, I, I love the fact that uh, when, when I'm doing this, there's going to be this spirit of thankfulness that comes over my heart. Not a spirit of greediness, not a spirit of a lack of contentment, but a spirit of real contentment because I know he's got it. He's going to take care of it. So I guess in, in a nutshell, if you're talking about specific requests, pray uh, with faith. Uh, remember who you're talking to. You're praying to a, a great God who can do awesome things in the lives of his people. And one of the things that he will do in response to prayer is show you his mighty hand and outstretched arm. But kind of those times, I guess, for lack of a better term, where God kind of winks at you and lets you know that he's really watching over you, that he really does understand what we're going through. And, and you know, sometimes that will happen in response to prayer. It's a great way to develop intimacy and nearness uh, with the Lord. It's a great way to find peace in the midst of, of um, outrageous circumstances. Uh, you know, there's a guy on uh, Twitter uh, who uh, shared that he had just been diagnosed with uh, stage four cancer. And, uh, you know, having gone down that road, the two main things that God taught me in my cancer journey uh, were these. Number one, uh, to remember 
that doctors may put labels on things, but God has the final decision. Mm. And number two, boy, keep Hebrews 13.5 right at the forefront. Uh, and that scripture says, I will never leave you and never forsake you. I love that because he's not only present, he's not going to forsake us either. He's going to take a strong mm. hand and mighty arm and show himself powerful to us. And, and that's really what prayer is all about. And doesn't the question sort of assume that God has a really detailed blueprint for every detail of our lives, which is kind of a presumption? I mean, that would be a very fatalistic look at existence where it seems, Scripture seems to indicate that <clears throat> there's times where God relents, he changes his mind, that there is a little flexibility, not maybe his grand plan, of, but not every detail of our lives is written yeah. in stone, that the praying is just sort of robotically going through the motions. <laughs> yeah, I'd be careful with the phrase, uh, God changes his mind. People point out, like, say, the story of Jonah, how when uh, Jonah went through the city and basically said, yet uh, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown, uh, it's been called the, the world's greatest revival with the world's worst evangelist because everybody in the city repented up to the kings. They even put sackcloth on the cows to show God how sorry. And it, and it says, when God saw that they had repented, he relented concerning the calamity that he had uh, proposed to them, and he did not do it. Some people say, well, God changed his mind. Well, God never changed his mind. If God's purpose was to nuke Nineveh till it glowed and shoot it in the dark, he would have just done it. But notice God provided a prophet. He provided a message, as simple and maybe even bitterly shared as it was. Uh, but that was enough. And when people uh, responded to that, God didn't change his mind. It was always his purpose that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. You have to be careful about this idea of, uh, well, you know, God says, I'll, I'll take that one back. It's like the passage in Genesis 6 where it says that God was sorry he made man on the earth. It doesn't mean they go, oh man, why did I ever do that? That yeah, was a dumb idea yeah, to begin was, with. Catch him by surprise. Yeah. <clears throat> no, but it does tell us the brokenheartedness of God as he saw the reality of the misuse of our free will and our free choice in our relationship with him playing out. So I have to be careful about this idea that, uh, well, maybe we can talk God into something. Maybe he'll yeah. change his mind. No, he's never going to change his mind regarding his good purpose for us. Uh, his, his desire to bless us, his desire to uh, see us become like his son, to bring his glory to bear within our lives. He'll never uh, change his mind on that. I'm so glad about that. But I, I'm really glad that I have a relationship with him where, you know, it says we can come boldly before the throne of grace. The word boldly in the original language is two Greek words fused together. It, it means literally to say anything. I can say anything to him because he already knows what's on my heart mm -hmm. anyway. And, um, you know, I can tell him how I'd like to see something turn out. But, uh, you know, as you mentioned, Sean, that, uh, that uh, if it be your will, uh, let this happen. That tells me that I trust that God's got a higher perspective, a better take. Uh, mm -hmm. Here's what I'd like to see happen, Lord, but ultimately I'm going to trust you. And that's something that always deepens our relationship with him. And the key thing, would, would you suggest that, that, that God does respond to prayer, though? It's not yes. as if yes. <clears throat> there's, oh, well, if, thank you for saying that, but uh, that's not part of the plan. Well, uh, James chapter 5 and verse 17, it says, uh, 16 says, the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And then he provides this illustration. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. So evidently, Elijah's prayers mattered mm. in all of this. 
Was it God's will to judge Israel by no rain for three and a half years? Yeah. Did God use Elijah's prayers to affect that change? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Did God use Elijah's prayers to bring an end to that time of discipline? Yeah. So why not pray? Right. Yeah. And I like the Luke 18 you mentioned. Is yeah. that the, isn't that the parable of the relent, uh, the unrelenting women or the widow yeah. but the yeah. judge? Yeah, the unrighteous judge. Yeah. Yeah, and it's a parable <laughs> of contrast. This judge says, man, this woman is going to wear me out with her constant <laughs> coming. You know, the idea of wearing out in the original language carries the idea she's going to give me a black eye. Uh, you know, carries mm. either the idea of, you know, the bags under your eyes because this woman's not giving me a moment's peace or the idea that the judge's rep was on the and so it says, although I don't fear God or uh, respect man, uh, I'll, I'll give her justice. And uh, Jesus said, well, hear what the unrighteous judge says. How much more will your heavenly father respond to those who call upon him continually? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's the contrast. God's not an yeah. unrighteous judge. He's not worried about his rep. Uh, we can't wear him out. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he has ultimate uh, power and perspective. Uh, we just need to pray. I like that Romans idea where he says, you know, even a parent, when their child asks for a piece of bread, isn't going to give them a rock. How much more? Yeah. Well, God. Yeah, <laughs> Luke chapter 11. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you, Joppy. I hope I'm saying your name correctly. That was a great question, and I hope that that was encouraging to you as well as the rest of you listening in on <clears throat> the power and necessity of prayer and having a vital relationship with God. Hannah wants to know, as horrible as this war against Israel is, isn't Israel's survival and victory foretold in biblical prophecy? Yes, but that's the point. We're not praying that God would do something. We're aligning our hearts with what God already is going to do. Yeah, and uh, once again, I don't think we should fall into fatalism. Uh, this idea, well, okay, God's going to take care of them. So, you know, we don't need to support Israel. We don't need to say, uh, you know, send a contribution to, say, the Joshua Fund. Uh, our good friend Joel Rosenberg's uh, great relief organization that ministers to Israelis and Palestinians in Israel, uh, we get an opportunity to be able to be a part of things. And God uh, will honor us if we honor him. God will allow us uh, and uh, our decisions to have an impact on these sort of things. So we don't want to get fatalistic on one hand. We don't want to take it all into our own hands. Uh, but does God have a purpose and a plan for Israel? Yeah. Does God have a purpose and a plan for our lives? Yeah, absolutely. But uh, faithfulness and aligning ourselves with God's will is part and parcel of walking in that plan. And in the last days after the rapture of the church, um, it's not as if Israel will not go unscathed. <laughs> uh, that's, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the time of Jacob's trouble is what uh, the final seven years leading up to Jesus' actual uh, return to earth is called, and it's going to be horrific. Uh, but it's also going to be a time where sin did increase and grace did much more increase. That God's going to use the Jewish people in a powerful and profound way to reach the entire world. Yeah, if the population of Israel is anywhere near today at that time, it would be similar to the loss of the Holocaust, about six million. Yeah, two-thirds uh, are going to get wiped out, according to the prophet Zechariah. Wow. Uh, uh, next question from uh, Yari. <clears throat> if Jesus Christ can come and have theophanies, that's appearances in the Old Testament, uh, can Satan come in human form as well? Has he ever and will he ever come in human form? Has he? We're not told. Will he? Technically not. Uh, the Revelation 13 passage noting his 
physical protégés are made distinct from him. Um, the beast from the sea, also known as the Antichrist, the beast from the earth, also known as the false prophet, in the same book, by the way, are representatives of him, but not manifestations earthly of him. Some people, like Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jenkins' Left Behind series, have put forward the idea that maybe at the halfway point, Satan will bodily possess the Antichrist after the prophesied assassination attempt fails. You can read more about that excuse me, in Zechariah and Daniel. But the idea of him appearing is like anything else that Satan does. God's not going to allow it without permission and not without purpose, and also, even more importantly, not without a proper response in kind. Uh, there'd be no reason for him to take on bodily form. He seems very content in accusing us before the throne of God, which doesn't require a physical form. There you go. Oh, and by the way, Here's a, a little update. I hate being right all the time. Mm. Uh, Vice President Kamala Harris uh, just posted, taking on hate is a national priority. Today, the President of the United States are announcing the country's first national strategy to counter Islamophobia. Yet nice knowing you, everybody. <laughs> yet right now, there are Jewish students literally being barricaded in college campuses on the United States ground, on soil because they cannot even be escorted out of these college campuses. That well, first of all, I would not issue. be opposed in any way, shape, or form if it was a national strategy to counter abuse of Muslims. I, I would not be opposed to that one bit because that's about people, but this is about an idea. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a difference between that and anti-Semitism. Notice it's not <clears throat> anti-Judaism. Uh, it, it's anti-Semitism. It's the attack on people that that matters right. uh you know last i checked uh we have in this country a bill of rights that allows us to be able to debate uh robustly mm -hmm. any kind of idea but uh that uh battle of ideas uh can never be supplanted by say a, a physical punch in the nose you know at that point uh we have violated the law mm. so uh leave it up to the theologians in Washington, D.C. to come up with something like this. I hope it's, you know, it just reminds me of a line from the movie The Sting, where this uh, detective is brought in to uh, this uh, kind of propped up FBI uh, front, and he says, sit down. Try not to live down to all my expectations. <laughs> you know, I'm hoping they don't live down to all my expectations. You know, my concern is if they set off a nuclear weapon in the United States and hundreds of millions of people end up dying in a nuclear fireball and all the economic woes around the world as a result of the fallout, the, the anti-Muslim backlash that would happen from that. That's what I'm really worried about. Yeah, well, a uh, Ma from a, yeah, Megan Bashan, uh, who is uh, a uh, writer and reporter uh, with uh, the Wall Street Journal, uh, First Things Magazine, uh, and uh, the Daily Wire uh, had this comment. We have pro-Hamas officials in the Department of Homeland Security and students openly celebrating the genocide of Israelis in the streets, but the Biden administration's response is to announce an Islamophobia policy. They want you to feel demoralized by how little they care about what you think. Hmm. Well... We're not going to be demoralized. We're going to continue to share God's word. Yep. So that's all we can do. Yep. Yeah. Even if well, it throws me in prison. Tom wants to know what does it mean in Revelation six six says, "Don't waste or damage the olive oil and wine." 
It's a reference to the book of Zechariah, chapter 6, along with the other horsemen, as well as certain sections of Ezekiel. Uh, it's describing the fallout of the spiritual entity and what I believe is the overall impact of the rise of the Antichrist. It'll be a global economic disaster, like the Dust Bowl and the Great Depression on steroids. Uh, oil and wine is used throughout the Bible, even going as early as Deuteronomy, as pictures of God's blessing of abundance, and those things will be taken away. So the idea of wanting to preserve these things, the communication along with the scales, which is an economic money-measuring weight system, uh, is him saying a quart of wheat for a denarius, that was a single meal for a day's pay, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, uh, subpar meals, but enough to eat for a day. That's describing the wages, the food that will be available, and the prices that will be in. You think we have inflation now. The impact of the first half of the tribulation will be devastating. Hmm. Well, real quick, um, yeah. uh, Yari's uncle is a deist. Uh, there's peace in Islam. They even have a Q and... Like... Question and answer programs, yeah. When yeah. it comes to dawah, it's propaganda. When it comes to claims that are made by people, and we've heard many objections from your uncle before, it's another thing's taken from the storehouse of ignorance. When it comes to any claim about a religion, do the same thing that we're doing here. Ask for chapter and verse. If a Buddhist mm -hmm. claims he has a relationship with the universe, where's that in the Bhagavad Gita? If a Muslim says, oh, Islam means peace, well, first off, get a dictionary, but secondly, where's that in your Quran? Nowhere does it say to have peace with me as a non-believer. In fact, it curses me. Mm. Well, thank you, Sean. Thank you, Pastor Scott. And we will be having a service here shortly, our Oasis service, starting in about 30 minutes. We'd encourage you to join us. Thank Ezekiel you for tuning 38. in. Yeah. Mm, exciting. Yeah. We'll be here again tomorrow. God bless you and have a wonderful evening. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.